I keep thinking that there's always this discussion of how much everything's going to go back to normal next year and that this is almost like a psychological tell that we're engaged in a form of wishful thinking or that we deep down know that things are not going to go back to normal and that with COVID-19, you know, it's obviously a stress and a crisis for the system, but it also revealed that there were many ways in which the system wasn't quite working. And I think the status quo ante simply doesn't make sense. People do not want to go back to 2019. So 2019 was a year of you know, there were all these sort of old economy institutions that had been on autopilot for 20 years. You know, you think of 2020 as the first year of the 21st century, and the 20th century has gone on 20 years longer than it should have. Student debt was a problem in 2000. It was $300 billion. By 2019, it was $1.7 was It was growing exponentially. It made no sense. 2020 is the year we jumped the shark, and you're spending $50,000 a year for Zoom calls instead of going to college. And everybody can see this is totally ridiculous. And I don't know if you go back to the pretty dysfunctional status quo ante. And I think what's true of the dysfunctional zombie colleges system is true of maybe all sorts of institutions. You know, since the mid-1990s, people have talked about telecommuting as sort of, you know, the next big innovation in transportation. You know, maybe what railroads were for the 19th century and highways were for the 20th, telecommuting could be for the 21st. And for whatever reason, you know, it didn't quite work. And maybe the technology wasn't quite there. Maybe it was just some sort of collective action problem where we didn't have the will to do it. But in 2020, we've gone into the 21st century. Perhaps we should have done it 20 years ago, but we've done it. And I think the super dysfunctional megacities like New York and San Francisco are not simply going to come back. You know, they are, they're going to have to actually solve their problems. And they can't just count on 20th century network effects to bail them out. Because in the 21st century, the network effects will not be driven as much by physical geography, but can be more virtual. And there's a sort of radical reconfiguration of what that a city is will mean in, in, in the years ahead. And so I think there are uh, quite a number of things that will you know, will, will live music concerts come back? I think so. I think people would like to go back to those. But I think there are a lot of 20th century institutions that uh, I would be very, very skeptical of here. And it's going to be a very radical transformation in the years ahead of these if these changes last. More than they want to live in a shoebox apartment in Manhattan or that they want to spend $50,000 on, on a, you know, worthless college education. <laughs> yeah. So you, you truly believe that things like work from home are here to stay? Is, do I assume that's right? I think um, I think directionally it is it is going to stay that way. You know the um, the tech companies in Silicon Valley have been perhaps the most vigorous in in pushing this. And uh, you know if you have an internet company, uh, one of the things you believe is that you're capable of using the internet yourself. And so it is it is very on brand for Silicon Valley to get remote work to work. And uh, if you had a tech company that says we can't use the internet and remote work doesn't actually work for us. That actually at this point sounds like the wrong thing. So I think the, you know, they may not completely shift, but I think, you know, I think the big tech companies are going to make a pretty big shift. It will be pretty long lasting. You know, their employees have signed one year leases, you know, all over the country to live elsewhere. And I think it will just get rolled over from here. And then we can debate how much of the rest of the economy this will be true of. But if you sort of think of Silicon Valley tech as being, you know, where the future is going, that's probably going to last. Well, certainly this year, I, I keep thinking it's like the same movie, like in 99, 2000, where it's the new economy versus the old economy. But this time it's the different ending where the new economy is winning and the old economy is losing. Whereas in 
March of 2000, it was the new economy that blew up. Maybe you could say March 2020, 20 years later, we're trying the alternate ending from the one that was tried in, in March of 2000. And so, yeah, I think it's broadly, you know, it's broadly the, uh, the new economy type things that have had an incredible year across the board this year. And then the, the older economy businesses, um, you know, I think are, you know, are going to are going to have quite a struggle in, in all sorts of ways. You know, I think it's it's going to be sort of quite complicated what happens. You know, the next few years, there probably are parts of the cyclical old economy that, that can you know come back, come back partially. So, but uh, I don't know if you if you look at two thousand, if you sort of say we're the opposite of what actually happened in the year two thousand. Two thousand tech went straight down, and banks actually went straight up. So banks were sort of an old economy thing that did incredibly well in 2000. And they've had a very bad year this year. And uh, because because a lot of the banks are old economy businesses that are that should be competing in a new economy medium. FinTech is, you know, the internet is, you know, it's zeros and ones. It's money is, is sort of a natural virtual product. And so it's very natural for FinTech companies to displace the banks. And there's a weird way where this year has been the opposite of 2000 on the tech versus banking access, for example. And so I, yeah, I, I sort of keep thinking it's, it's a lot of things that are just the, literally the exact opposite of 99, 2000. We just have the opposite movie going on this time. It's hard to say what's going to happen with assets. There's, it seems to me we have this, you know, super weird experiment going on with, you know, with interest rates where the interest rates keep going lower and lower. And is that going to be sustainable or not? You know, if, if they can keep the interest rates as low as they are, maybe, uh, maybe, a lot of asset prices can be stabilized. If it finally breaks, that's going to be probably a challenge, you know, across the board. But yeah, I, I know probably the one asset that I most strongly believe in, you know, as an investor, you often want to find things that are so stupid that um, other investors are embarrassed to invest in them. And so, for example, the FANG stocks were an instance of a stupid asset. It was the really big tech stocks. It was just Jim Cramer came up with the FANG acronym on Mad Money in 2014. If you just followed his advice, we'd have made eight times your money in the last six years. We've done better than any venture capitalist. It was too stupid in a way. you know. And so my candidate for the investment that is so big and so stupid that professional money managers are embarrassed to do it because it suggests they're not doing enough work is to just buy Bitcoin. We have a strange monetary experiment. Maybe you should be long gold, but gold is still the old economy asset and probably it's Bitcoin more than gold, and nobody's in that one. So that's, that would be my bullish advice, although maybe it's also bearish on a lot of stuff implicitly. It seems like it's a pretty big trend, and I think with all these questions, you know, the, question you, the way you can flip the question around is you can ask, why hasn't this happened yet? You know, why have people put up with these incredibly expensive cities? And, and you know, one of the reasons migration in the U.S. was lower in recent decades than it was in most of the 20th century was that we shifted to two income households from if you have a one income household, you only need one person to move cities to move jobs and you can move to a better city where you you know better living, better salary, whatever. When you have a two income household, uh, people have been really stuck in the places because it's very hard for two income people to coordinate their move. If one of the two is no longer ge- or both are no longer geographically bounded, all of a sudden you can unlock that and there's a you know it's there's a tremendous I don't know, arbitrage, tremendous amount of, of rationalization you can do. And yeah, I think the big cities were just a bubble. It was everybody had to be there because everybody had to be there. And once everybody's not there, you don't have to be there anymore. You know, if you went to an elite university in the U.S., 
you probably thought that you know you have to move to a city not just for work but even even socially if you, if you don't move to a top city uh, you will find you know a less desirable spouse and you might have dumb kids or some, something <laughs> like that that's probably what people actually believed and uh, and I think all of this has sort of been partially unlocked this year there is a vast amount of space in this country it's it's still you know it still is a very big rather underpopulated country. It's just, it, it doesn't feel that way if you were living in Manhattan or San Francisco for the last number of years. In theory, something like this should be should be happening in a very big way. It's it's strange to me that not more of it has, has happened. But I think, you know, I think in the energy area, we can always say that, you know, one version of globalization was that oil was the naturally globalized resource. You have an oil tanker in Saudi Arabia, and it's, let's say it's $40 a barrel in Saudi Arabia, by the time it gets to Japan, it's maybe $44. It's maybe 10% more to send it halfway around the world. If you have a BTU of natural gas in the U.S., it's $3 in Texas. And by the time you get it to Europe, it's 7 or $9 because the LNG and transportation thing is much more expensive. So natural gas, can, it's, it's maybe up 150 to 200% of a markup to send it up from the U.S. to Europe. Oil is a 10% markup. So oil is a naturally global market, whereas natural gas is perhaps a naturally regional market. And so if you say we're going, and, and then, you know, there's probably a way in which the oil economy was linked to petrodollars and money center banks. It was, it was an incredibly important part of the globalization story. And so part of the post-globalization story is that we're moving towards a more regional world in which natural gas dominates. It's not, it's not the way people talk about it ideologically because they often think of, you know, natural gas is the clean thing and, you know, clean is about climate change. Climate change is a form of globalization. But I, I think the, the actual mapping is that oil was one of the key commodities that sort of linked the world globally. And if it becomes less important, it will naturally deglobalize. The thing that's crazy about the U.S. is, yeah, we should just be doing manufacturing like crazy in Texas. We shouldn't be you know, sending the natural gas to run manufacturing plants in Europe or in China or elsewhere. But I, th I think the arbitrage is big enough in natural gas that this will eventually happen. I, I think it's one of the areas where Washington, D.C. policymakers tend to be quite weak on all these technology things. And, uh, you know, the, the sense I always get is that people often don't really, they, they just use these things as buzzwords. And everybody in the room uses them as buzzwords, and nobody even knows what they mean. And, you know, there's a, an Obama administration document, a friend of mine pointed me out the other day, where if you used every instance of the word AI and you replaced it with computer, it still made just as much sense. And so, you know, it's sort of like we should at least acknowledge that this is sort of roughly where the policymakers are, where they don't understand the difference between the word AI and computer. If you can do a search and replace in a document, and it still means as much or as little as before, we somehow don't understand this. It's, it's some. It's somehow there's a discourse about technology where everybody in the room knows that they don't know what they're talking about, and they can just use the same buzzwords in a in a way that makes makes no sense. So I think if we were to make AI less abstract, is is it the next generation of computing? Is it the last generation of computing? Is it you know superhuman intelligence? Is it just sort of big data? machine learning applied in certain kinds of, of narrow context. So I think you have to always sort of concretize it, it very, very specifically. I, I would say certainly one, one dimension of it that seems to me to be quite important to policymakers is do we, should we be thinking of this as a weapon, that it's going to be used in conjunction with cyber, in conjunction with other weapon systems, and that this is uh, sort of what is really at stake in the AI race between the U.S. and China.
And even framing it that way pushes you into into very uncomfortable space for Silicon Valley. So, so I think I think we have to just you know avoid hiding behind the abstractions. Or it's like you know the Huawei five G thing is is again it's a it's a discussion about you know, very particular things about five G. How does it roll out? Do we need it? What what are the actual alternatives? And hiding behind just the five G buzzword just obfuscates way more than it eliminates. Been quite hard to figure out a way to uh, to create a real win win dynamic between the the two societies, and and certainly there are parts of our society that have benefited and that have done well. I, I think it's quite a bit less than it was thirteen fourteen years ago. So you know may, maybe there were some very unhealthy things about the China relationship in the mid two thousands, but there was a broad cross section of U.S. business leaders that believed it would be good for their businesses, that China was a natural expansion market. And, you know, if you say what sectors of the U.S. economy still believe in China, I would say it is a subset of Wall Street. So it's sort of asset gatherers on Wall Street because they get money from China. It is Hollywood and it is the universities. And that is a relatively narrow pro-China constituency. It's, it's mostly a Democratic Party one, but it's probably too narrow even for the, for the Democratic Party. And so I think even in the Biden administration, it's unclear whether those industry groupings will be enough to, to overcome, you know, the very real challenges from China in you know, military arms race and, you know, hollowing out manufacturing in the U.S. in, you know, IP theft. And so sort of all these other places where where the relationship is very challenged. And I think it will be quite hard to get it to, to a healthy place from here. You know, my, my sense is probably the technology part of of it is an important part where we have to to stay competitive, and that involves you know questions about semiconductors to five G to, to AI, and that's I, I worry that that's an area that DC is generally uncomfortable about discussing, and that people would prefer you know talking about having an open playing field for trade in soybeans or something like that. I'd like there to be more focus on these hard tech and IP questions, even though that's hard to do. You know, I, I would say one way to frame the challenge of AI is that. It's obviously a new technology. It can be a, a powerful weapon, but there also are ways in which it it has sort of a totalitarian vibe. And you know, the the, the one liner I have on this is, you know, if crypto is libertarian, if Bitcoin or crypto are libertarian, then AI is communist. And it's sort of like it's it's literally communist in the sense that you know, if you sort of think of the classic libertarian arguments against communism, is you can't find. The price you can't set the prices on things, but if you have a supercomputer that gets information from everything, maybe it can actually set the prices. If you even it can it can solve all these sort of classic libertarian problems in theory. And you have a government that sort of it's like it's like the god of Saint Augustine. It's completely outside you. It's completely inside you. It knows more about you than you know about yourself. And that's there's something about that picture of God or the state that is kind of scary and totalitarian and tyrannical. And that's why I think we're right to be hesitant with AI. I, I don't think China has a technological lead on AI. I think the innovation is still happening more in, in the West than in China, but it is willing to apply AI in ways that we haven't been and we probably should not be. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a complicated technology for, for the West because we shouldn't give up on it. But then it is one that many of the applications of which I think are are quite problematic. You know, I think the macroeconomic question is always how much are the productivity gains 
what are the productivity numbers in the whole economy and what's the potential growth in GDP for the economy? And I tend to think if we have, you know, accelerating technology, we should have high productivity growth, high GDP growth. And when you have those things, you can then solve all these distributional problems and these other problems can get solved in, in you know, one way or another. And the challenge in my mind is the thing I worry about is, is not that we have accelerating unbalanced technology, but that it's actually not enough. And that we have you know, we have this powerful revolution in the world of bits, IT, computers, internet, AI, but um, it doesn't actually translate to that greater a productivity in average. You know, we had this manifesto on our website at Founders Fund from almost a decade ago where, you know, was they promised us flying cars and all we got was 140 characters. And it's it's not an indictment of Twitter as a company. It's a, it's a great company. It's great for the, you know, several thousand people who work there and smoke too much pot all day long. Uh, it's it's a it's a great it's a great business, but it's 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 perhaps it's not enough to actually take our civilization to the next level. And that's that's always the disconnect on the IT side where some fantastic businesses have been built. But it hasn't yet shown up in the productivity numbers for the for the economy as a whole. And that's why, you know, I think the problem is one of stagnation more than even inequality. Although there's you know, always one thing where it's tech decoupling from the rest of society. I think the, the felt sense people have is stagnation that, you know, the younger generation is finds it hard to do as well as their parents. And that that stagnation seems to me to be the, the, the real thing. It's in a very difficult place because it's, you know, is it an investment? Is it a consumption decision? Is college a four-year party? Is it an insurance policy? Is it a tournament? And it's sort of some weird amalgamation of, of all of these things that does none of them terribly well. You know, I think high school education still works because it has a teleology to it and it's directed towards getting into a good college. Once you get into a good college, you are completely disoriented because it, it's clear it doesn't lead anywhere. You know, the only two college majors at top colleges that are translatable economically are computer science and petroleum engineering, you know, and everything else is, is sort of you're just spinning your wheels. If you go to graduate school, that's clearly a step down from college. People in Ph.D. programs are lower status than undergraduates. The undergraduates are at least the paying customers. The graduate students are sort of the indentured servants. And so there's something you know, very, very odd about a system where if you succeed in it and you're supposed to go to graduate school, congratulations, you get demoted. I think the whole system makes extremely little sense at this point, and it's it's been sustained, like so many of the other 20th century institutions in our society, by the overarching idea, we don't know what else to do. There is no alternative. And it's kind of true, but that doesn't obfuscate the way in which it's beyond bankrupt at this point. Well, you know, certainly software has been the right thing to do for a long time. And that's so directionally, that's probably still, you know, the best specific thing to do. You know, if you're going to go to college, you should probably figure out, you know, as cheap an alternative as possible. You should try to go to a cheap state school, you know, minimize the amount of debt. Maybe it's a credential you need, but, you know, just avoid amassing a lifetime of debt that you can, can't discharge even if you go bankrupt. Yeah, I think President Obama was still paying off some of his school debt when he was running for office or some crazy stat like that, like way far later into his life than you'd ever would have thought. Well, so many people are. Buttigieg was. It's, it's, it's a little bit more of a reason. I, I think Obama, it wasn't quite that bad in the 80s. It's, 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 it's sort of right. because the, the costs have escalated a lot. So, it, you know, this is always where, where the older baby yes. boomer people, I think, just don't get it because, you know, in the 60s or 70s, you could you could work your way through college and that was perfectly reasonable because 
you know, the costs were, were manageable and, and now it's just, it just has spiraled completely out of control. And maybe, maybe with some pricing discovery thing where they realized they could charge more and more and they could get away with it, but it's, it's now just purely dysfunctional. It's again, what does it mean? It's very hard to describe what the substance is that people have learned. And so it's, is it just a status thing? It's just a credentialing thing. And it's felt like that's mattered a lot. I would bet on that mattering a lot less in the years ahead. You know, certainly the, the delta between high school and college kept growing through about 2000. It has actually not grown in the last 20 years because even though, you know, high school incomes have been stagnant, college incomes haven't gone up much in the last 20 years and the debt has gone up more. So actually the delta between a high school degree and a college degree has narrowed slightly in the last 20 years. So this was a real thing in the 80s and 90s, but it's actually narrowed some in the last 20. Well, it's it's always hard to give yes, yeah, hard to give sort of very generic advice like Understood. this. I I think there is, you know, I think the silver lining of of this crazy year that we've just been through is there's a reset and there's there's a possibility to to reset your life and reset it in a different city, different career to to try to do something very very different. And we had all these stories that you couldn't reset, you had to keep doing what you were doing, and I think that's been exploded this year. Well, it's something like the indomitability of the human spirit. It's that there's always space for creativity, originality. People are going to always try to do new things. You know, I'm not I'm not insanely optimistic, but I I I do believe there's always a great deal of room for human agency and it can be good or bad. But it's, you know, it's it's up to us to make the future better. You know, it's not like the singularity is near a la Kurzweil where we just have to sit back, eat some popcorn and watch the movie of the future unfold. We have, we have to make it happen. <laughs>